Right, let's just uh, open the Word of God. We, it's wonderful to see that as a, a church, as a community, that you're going through the book of Romans. I have very fond memories of this book. When I was a younger man in my early 20s, an older man who I thought was very old at the time, he might have been 45, <laughs> he said to me, Nathan, I would really like to spend some time with you. I would like to disciple you. I'd like to uh, just pour into your life. And I said, okay, that sounds like a, a really good plan. And uh, he said, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the book of Romans. And I think uh, from that point in time, the Lord showed to me just some depths of uh, the gospel that I had never seen before. And I trust as you've been going through uh, this book, uh, I think you started four weeks ago, as you've looked at the gospel being the power of God unto salvation, as you've looked at the aspects that man and mankind has been removed from God because of sin. And then last week I guess you would have looked at the solution. Christ's righteousness being imparted, being imputed, being accounted, being credited to those who have faith and trust in Christ. And uh, you were seeing last week that it's of grace. It's a gift of grace. The gift of God's marvellous grace. I trust that as you, you've dwelt and meditated upon that it's strengthened your souls. Because as I've looked at this passage this week I've been strengthened by these wonderful, wonderful theologies and facts about the gospel. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in today's world and culture, we, we live in a, a culture that is very goal orientated. You know, you can't pick up a newspaper or you can't see a, a, a media coverage on the news that doesn't in some way present a goal. Whether it's a sporting team, whether it's inside the classroom, whether it's in your office, or perhaps even in your marriage. Maybe you have goals inside your marriage. And What tends to be within our culture anyway, and especially within this Australian culture, to achieve a goal is based on a whole lot of discipline and a whole lot of work. If a goal has been put before you to be a championship sporting team, there will be a whole lot of goals and disciplines about fitness, about technique, about uh, the way you would play the game to reach the, the goal. If it's in the business environment, it will be set forth by your managers and bosses saying we want X amount of sales or we want X amount of people cared for or we want X amount of students to pass certain tests. And naturally in our own human way, We'll work hard. We'll work hard to, to try and achieve that goal. It's a natural part of the process within us to, to put steps forward and, and, and many milestones to, to achieve a goal. And in many ways, 
That is one of the arguments of this book of Romans. But yeah, you can put these goals forward, you can work, but there is no benefit in that with relation to your salvation. And Paul here draws us to that fact in a very powerful way as we look through Romans chapter 4. I'd like you to turn to Romans 4. As you've been read this morning, we've, we've looked at some of Abraham's life and as we look through Romans 4 today, Abraham becomes a key figure. Because as you understand, Paul has just presented in his argument, hey, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In 3.28 he states this, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. And I can see Paul as he thinks through this treatise, as he thinks through this letter. Because you know why he's written this letter, don't you? He's written this letter because he wanted to go and see this church. He had no association with this church on a personal level. He wanted to go and travel. And really he's written this as a statement of his position of faith. And as he wrote, wrote these words, he would have thought through the fact that inside that congregation there's Jews and there's Gentiles. It's a mixed body of believers in Christ. There's going to be some in there that will think that faith is a matter of works not a matter of grace. So in Paul's way, he says, I'm going to address that in this letter. I'm going to show you without a doubt that justification, being right before God, that's all that means, is a matter of grace and Christ's righteousness. So in 4 verse 1, we'll just read the first uh, 12 verses. And I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version today. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Good question. What say that faith was counted to Abraham, or we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness? How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness, that he had faith while he was still circumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness will be counted to them as well, 
and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abram had before he was circumcised. On face value it's quite a complex reading, isn't it? On face value we've got an argument and flow of argument running through here. I just want to try and unpack this for you today. You'll see in the first 12 verses you have two major forefathers of the faith in the Jewish faith. You have Abraham and you have David. Paul uses both Abraham and David to make a point about that we are justified by faith and not by works. He uses two what I would call straw men, two positions by perhaps the Jewish folks within this congregation that they may have had against being justified by faith. He uses the fact of works and he uses the fact of circumcision. And he addresses both these in a very skilful way. And he comes up by saying that both Abraham and David were justified by faith. So for us to understand this, we need to think about this verse that's quoted in, in Genesis 15:6, which was read this morning. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is Paul's main argument around works. He's firstly said, if Abraham had worked for his salvation, he'd have something to boast about. And secondly, he says, you know, when someone works a day's work and he receives something, it's not by faith he receives that, it's, a, it's not a gift, he's just getting what is due because he has worked for it. And he's saying, well, that is not Abraham because we read in Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So let's just think about Abraham. And if you want to, you can just put your Bibles back to, to Genesis 12 and 15, these verses that are read. And I just want to very briefly comment on the importance of Abraham in light of this discussion that Paul is trying to make. He's saying he has been counted to him as righteous. Faith is the issue. Not Abraham's goodness, not Abraham's piety, not Abraham's work. It was through faith that he was counted righteous. Counted, credited, imputed are all words for the same thing. When we talk about counted and credited and imputed, imputed is an old financial accounting term. It's an accounting term, say, look, um, and this would have been nice through seminary actually. If, for instance, I had a bank account and through seminary there was not a lot in the bank account. All right? The Lord, it was another act of faith. He provided as we went through that process. And how he provided at times there would be money appear in the bank account where we would not know where it had come from, either anonymous giver or whatever. And all of a sudden in our bank account we had something credited to us, accounted to us, imputed to us. We hadn't done anything to place that there, but it appeared there. 
And this is the sense of this counted and credited as righteous and imputed is that it's something that God has done as we will see as we work through the text. Firstly, in Genesis 12, 1-4 Please observe there are three aspects to the promise that were given to Abraham. Three aspects that you will be a great nation, Abraham that I will give you a land and I will personally bless you because of your faithfulness. And it's interesting as you read through those few verses, who is doing the work in Abraham's life? I'll give you a key. The Lord said to Abram, I will show you, I will make, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse, and in your, I will curse those who curse you and dishonour you. On seven occasions, you have God testifying the fact that He is going to do this work inside Abraham's life. And the story moves on into Genesis 15, and you have this picture of Abraham before the Lord. And the Lord says to him, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield and I will give you great reward. And Abram laments before the Lord because Abraham remembers the promise previously, doesn't he? That he will have a a land, he will have a nation and he will have personal blessing. And he laments because he doesn't have any fruit of his loins, so to speak. There is no heir. So he goes before, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Therefore, a member of my household will will fulfil the promise. But you know what God did? God took him out and said, Look at the stars, Abraham. Look at those stars. Can you number them? I don't know, have you ever been out in the middle of the uh, desert or away from city lights at night and looked up into the stars. It's incredible, isn't it? As you see the awesomeness of God and the wonder of his creation. And I can imagine Abraham looking at this expanse of God's creatorial power and God saying, Abraham, look at those. That is what your descendants will be like. And he believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. That's where we get this quote from Romans in Romans four, from this act. And do you know what happens beyond this? Because in Old Testament in the Old Testament times here, God has made a promise with Abraham. He's made a covenant. I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you a seed and I'm going to give you personal blessing. The way that that was done in these times was through a process of ratification. And there were many types of covenants or promises. You know, today we have the covenant of marriage, right? We we share rings and we say, you know, with this ring, this is a symbol of my love and we will remain married until death do us part. 
we may sign a promise to purchase a property or sign away and that is the ratification is our signature and we pay a deposit. What used to happen here in the various serious covenants is that uh, you would cut some animals in half and you and the other person if it was a blood covenant would hold hands and you'd walk through the cut animals ratifying and symbolising the fact that if either of you broke the covenant that you would end up like the animals beside you cut in half. And the, the, the keeping of the covenant was between you and the other person as you walk through. What God does in the end of chapter 15, he says to Abraham, and I'll just paraphrase this for you, verse 10, bring a couple of animals to me. We will cut them in half. We will ratify this covenant, this promise. We'll ratify it. But do you know that what the Lord does? Verse 13 of chapter 15. Verse 12 As the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold dreadful and great distress fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So the Lord prophesies to Abraham that hey your people are going to go into slavery. They're going to be there for a long time in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, the Egyptians, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go out, go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I'll give this land and then he gives some land boundaries. So what we have as opposed to the traditional two parties going through these uh, animals that are split in half ratifying a, a very strong covenant we have the Lord only. The Lord is making an unconditional covenant with Abraham. In Hebrews it talks about the fact that the Lord could swear by no one greater than himself. So therefore, he swore by himself and he is not alive. And this is part of the fact that this is why we have this testimony in Romans 4 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. Abraham understood that the promise that were given to him were based on who? God alone. Not on works. His journey of faith, the righteousness which he received was based on God. Because God alone ratified the promise. God alone says I will do this. Not according to any of his works, any of his piety, any of his Perceived goodness, but based solely on God. And to strengthen his argument, Paul now goes from Abraham and he goes to David. 
he quotes from Psalm 32. And uh, the psalm states this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. And we see a wonderful testimony from David in the psalm. I won't read the whole psalm, we'll just use the two verses here. But you see, David testified to the fact that one, God forgives sin. It's really interesting as you look at the root of this word, forgive here, it means to send off or to send away. So God sends off or sends away sin. On the one hand, according to David's experience, and on the other hand, God covers sin for those who turn and repent of their sin and... and, uh, Ask the Lord to forgive. So as you think about the Old Testament Day of Atonement, when Aaron used to come in, what did he do? He sprinkled blood onto the mercy seat. He covered the mercy seat with blood. He placed the sin of the nation in a metaphorical sense, in a picture sense, by placing his hands on a goat and sending a goat out into the desert, a scapegoat. Trots are off, sent, sent away. And David in a lot of ways is testifying to that reality in his own life. The Lord has sent away my sin. He is sending it off. And he has covered my sin. And this is the wonderful thing. He may have sent it off, he may covered it, but he will not count that sin against anyone anymore. And that's the testimony of David. You think about the life of David. This is only a very small snapshot. You think about his cycle of disobedience and his cycle of sin and immorality. And yet he could return and say, the Lord will not count my sin against me. He will not credit sin to my account. He will not impute my sin to me because he is faithful to cover and to send off. So it's not based on Works. It's based on God's marvellous, marvellous grace. So we have Abraham and we have David. Clearly testifying in their own words through the word of God that it's by, not by any merit of their own, not by any of their works that they are counted righteous before God. And then we have the issue of circumcision, verses 9 through 12. And what is circumcision? He, he sort of deals with this and he asks a question then, okay, well, was, was Abraham's uh, righteousness, was that because he was circumcised? And he uses a very simple historical argument. And we read this. In uh, Genesis 15, it talked about Abraham being counted righteous. At that time it was around 14 or 15 years after he'd left his homeland. So he was 75 when he left there, he was now around 90. And then we read in Genesis 17, that he's 99, where he's instructed to be circumcised. So he used the historical argument, he says, well no, it, can't, it cannot be circumcision that has justified you or saved you. It can't be, because that was, circumcision happened 
14 or 15 years after you were declared righteous. But he does say circumcision is you know, it's a sign and a seal. He uses those two words. You know, Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had faith. It's interesting the word sign, isn't it? I mean, when you're driving from here to Sydney, you, um, every couple of hundred K you'll see a sign, Sydney. Is that sign Sydney? No. It's a sign, isn't it? We're saying Sydney is somewhere out there. When you actually get to the outskirts of Sydney, you'll see a sign, Welcome to Sydney. I assume. Welcome to Sydney. Uh, so I've never had done that trip. But <laughs> you'll see that sign, Welcome to Sydney. Is that sign Sydney? No. What you see, the sign is pointing to the area that is Sydney, that is the city. And it's similar to here, that the circumcision was a sign. A sign of what? It was a sign of the promise that God had given to Abraham. That he would have great personal blessings, that he would have a land, and that all nations would be blessed through his offspring. And there's also a seal. And you know, it's interesting because today we have signs, don't we? We have signs of the bread and wine. We have signs of baptism. Those things point us to the inward reality of being Christ. The same as circumcision. But the point that he's trying to make here is that these this, this act of circumcision does not justify. He does that in a historical context. So Paul argues through this process you're not justified by works nor are you justified by a sign or a writ or a rite. And what does that mean to us today when we start considering that? Well, clearly, there is nothing that we can place to, between us and God to merit salvation. Nothing. We can do 50 years of humanitarian work. We can tithe regularly. We can do good works till they come out of our ears. But if we think that is the basis of our acceptance with God, The word of God says no. The basis of acceptance with God is Christ's righteousness. He stated in chapter 3 and he restated at the end of chapter 4. It is for by grace you are saved through faith that is a gift of God, not of works. And then he attacks the other thing, the sign, the circumcision. He's saying... By keeping these signs does not justify you. If you've sat in church for many years and you think that this is the process of justification, this is the process that allows you to be declared righteous before a holy God by taking these emblems, that is wrong. It's only based on Christ's righteousness, on the work of the cross. And we'll talk through that a little bit more. So, 
One is justified by faith apart from the works of the, the law. Apart from working for justification apart from a sign or a symbol. And he moves into the third area and he takes the law head on. Okay? Verse 13 through 17. We'll just quickly read these verses. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, or faith is of no value, as the NIV says. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So Paul now is looking at the law. He wants to determine whether the law can save, whether the law can justify, where it can, can do that. And it's interesting because he could have used the same argument that he used on circumcision, couldn't he? Because the law didn't come until 400 years after. He could have used the same historical argument saying, oh, the law is of no value, it didn't affect the promise that was given to Abraham because actually the law came in Moses' time. 430 years after Abraham. But he doesn't use that argument. He says, no, there are three things. Firstly, if it's not by faith, um, then your faith is no value. He really is saying faith and the law are opposites. It is impossible to be saved by both faith and works. Why? Very briefly, because the law is man-directed. It's about keeping a moral code. It's about trying to keep a set of rules to attain a goal. But faith, the channel of faith doesn't do that because the channel of faith lends itself to grace, realising it's a gift, which he summarises in verse 16. Faith is God-directed. It points to God's accomplishments. As you think of the life of Abraham, because he's going back to using Abraham as the basis for his argument here, the life of Abraham, what part did Abraham have to play in obtaining the promises that were instructed to him in Genesis 12? Nothing. In obedience he had to go forth, yes, but the reality was God was directing him. God would be the one who would provide the promise. And it starts to read here a little bit further on as we, at the end of chapter 4, that aspect of how God moved Abraham. The second thing is that if you're saved by the law, firstly, faith has no value. Secondly, the promise is worthless. At the end of chapter 14, the promise is void. Why? Because the promise would be conditional. Your justification would be based on, on aspects of picking up law. And that's not what it is. It's justified by grace through faith. And thirdly, the result of trying to pursue the law to be justified would bring wrath. We have that in verse 15. 
for the law brings wrath. Instead of, instead of achieving salvation by going down that way, you would actually achieve wrath according to this verse. The law will condemn. But then we have the positive side, the three consequences of faith, if you like. And here we are. Faith establishes grace. This is why it depends on faith, verse 16, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Faith and grace go together by nature. It's by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The second thing here, which we see in verse 16, is that faith makes your salvation certain. I love that word, guaranteed. That he be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who stands shares the faith of Abraham. So in this point Paul says, look, it's not only Jew, it's Jew and Gentile. Because Abraham is the father of all. He is the father of promise. If you read back in Galatians chapter 3, it helps unlock this even further. We haven't got time to go there, but Galatians 3 talks about the fact that Abraham's faith, actually I will read just one verse out of here. Here it is, uh, Galatians 3 verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel, listen to this, beforehand to Abraham. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So in some way God revealed to Abraham that through his offspring a Messiah would come and all nations would be blessed through that. And it was a guarantee based on God himself. Because God is faithful, he does not waver in his promises. He has done what is necessary through the death of Christ, therefore providing certainty to those who place faith in Christ for salvation. We can rest on the knowledge that the work is done on the cross and we can be confident the salvation is ours. And also here, we see faith opens the door of salvation to all, just not to the Jews, but to all. The end of verse 17. And as we conclude, we're just going to go through these final few verses very quickly. Because what we see is we see, I guess, Abraham's own experience highlighted I just want to highlight four things it's in hope Abraham believed against hope I think it would have been kind of humorous to be there when God said to Abraham at 99 years old and Sarah was 90 you're going to have a son kind of humorous but Abraham believed he hoped against hope Also, a little bit further on, when that beloved son, his ear, was being asked to be sacrificed, what was Abraham's hope then? 
You know what I reckon? Abraham's hope was the fact, I'm doing what you ask, Lord. You have given me this promise. It is your promise. Even if I sacrifice my son, you may raise him from the dead because you have promised. But you know, we know the story. God graciously stopped the arm. God graciously says, take your son away. There is a lamb in the thicket for sacrifice. So he hoped and he believed against hope. He did not weaken in the faith, verse 19 says. He did not weaken. Even when he considered that his old, old body couldn't bear children, he believed God. Verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. And the key point here I think is 21 where it says fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's the marvellous thing, isn't it? Abraham, the man of faith, was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had spoken to him about. And that provides great certainty for us. Are we fully convinced in the power of the cross? Because as you go through verses 22 through 25, he summarises, he says, even this experience of Abraham and David, these things we know that this is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him or credited or imputed were not written for, this, for his sake alone. They're not written for Abraham and David, but for our sake. Why? Because if we have faith and we believe that Christ has justified us, we have our sins counted away from us, removed, because why? Christ's righteousness is counted to our account. The death, burial and resurrection of Christ is in our account. It is imputed. And that's the only way we can stand. It is the only way. Just a couple of observations. Christ's death was planned by God. Verse 25, who was delivered up for our transgressions. Christ's death was for others and Christ's resurrection proves our justification. We are justified because Christ has raised from the dead. He has had victory over death and hell and sin. So therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and this is how Paul summarises this, since we have been justified by faith, what we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this imputation, this creditedness of Christ's righteousness to our behalf is such a precious truth. When you struggle in your day-to-day walk, when you are maligned and, and have abuses hurled at you because of your faith in Christ, Remember the spiritual blessings you have in Christ. Remember that you are justified. 
None of the sin that you commit on a daily basis can ever be counted against you because Christ has dealt with that. That is such a liberating thing to understand that it's by God's grace that we live. And you'll learn over the next three or four chapters what that looks like. You'll learn it as you understand God's grace in your life through the sanctification process. What Paul instructs in that regard. But I just want to encourage you today that firstly, your justification is through faith and this through faith gives you Christ's righteousness. It has been imputed, it has been imparted, it has been counted, it has been credited. And that is so secure. Abraham's testimony was of security. He was fully convinced. Perfect state, fully convinced. And we too can be fully convinced. We are freed from the penalty of sin through Christ's righteousness. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we, as we contemplate these words, we are in awe of what you have done on our behalf through Christ. Father, we thank you that Your Son's precious righteousness is counted on our behalf, is credited to us, is imputed to us. None of this can be attained by works or by a sign or by the law, but is only a free gift of your grace. We praise you for that. We pray that we will live in the light of this truth, this reality. That our hearts through your spirit will be fully convinced of this wonderful truth. We thank you for our time around the word this morning. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.